Hello, and welcome to Cubs PS Plus, a Northside Numbers game, a weekly podcast that dives headfirst into the analysis of hot topics driving Chicago Cubs baseball. I'm your host, Mike Waller, a lifelong Cub fan, full-time baseball stat nerd, and sometime youth baseball coach. Thank you for being here today. I know you have a lot of choices. You can also find me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube, all at Cubs PS Plus, a spin on the baseball metric OPS Plus. If you can, please take 10 seconds and drop a rating or a review on Apple, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you've done that, thank you so much. Maybe you could share an episode with a friend. Just a few seconds on your end can help me get better and help other Cub fans find the show. You can also now help support the Cubs PS Plus podcast by going to cubspsplus.patreon.com. There are four support tiers that come with added perks, such as access to a private Discord discussion group, access to bonus episodes, merchandise discounts in the merch store that will launch in the coming weeks, and the ability to submit priority questions ahead of time for interview guests and more. Your support will help me keep this podcast ad-free. Welcome into episode 37. The number 37 makes this the Travis Wood episode of the Cubs PS Plus podcast. The Cubs opened the weekend by designating Eric Hosmer for assignment, a move we've all been waiting for for a few weeks. Nico Horner made his return in Philadelphia, and the Cubs were a mixed bag over the weekend, winning a blowout on Friday, getting blown out on Saturday, and wasting another fantastic outing from Justin Steele today, and in the process, continuing to struggle with men on base and getting big outs from the bullpen. On the plus side, Christopher Morell is all the vibes, and he can't be human at this point. I'll get back to those issues next week, but today I'm thrilled to be joined by Ben Lindbergh, longtime host of the Effectively Wild podcast from Fancrafts, and co-author of two books, The MVP Machine and The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. Ben and I talk about player development and how things have changed since he and Travis Sawchuk published The MVP Machine four years ago. We talk about changes in technology and process, what things were, were once advantages and are now table stakes, and how players are empowered more than ever before thanks to all the data and measurables at their fingertips. Ben is always a great listen, so sit back and enjoy his unique perspective. Are you ready? I'm ready. Here. We. Go. So this week I'm thrilled to be joined by Ben Lindbergh. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. I was recently going through, looking through my podcast topics. I've had a number of guest interviews and I realized as I was getting through, I've talked to strength and conditioning from the Cubs. I've talked to um, Mike Son, a baseball scientist for the Cubs. I've talked to David DeSilva, one of their mental skills coaches. And every step, it kind of pulled me back to when I read the MVP machine a couple of years ago. And um, we don't need to rehash the book. It's not necessarily you know new, but I want to talk about some of the trends in there, how it relates to today. I think there are a lot of things currently happening in the game today that are obviously the result of you know what you and Travis explored in that topic. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the first things I want to start off with is what did give you the idea to go back and to go do that book and look into that? I think each of us had kind of a conversion to the idea that actually there was more potential to player development, particularly at the major league level, than we had previously suspected. Because in my case, at least, I had always sort of thought that if you made it to the majors, then you must already have maximized your potential, more or less. You know, it's uh, that's the pinnacle, right? So just to get there, you must already have been getting the most out of your talents. And especially once you get to the middle of your career, that probably you would not see someone take a a giant leap. Of course, you know, you can go back and look throughout baseball history. And to some extent, there have always been players who suddenly reached a new level of performance. But we started to see a, a wave of players who 
did that in a really surprising way that was sort of data or technology driven or enabled, right? So in my case, it was Rich Hill, an effectively mm -hmm. wild podcast legend and baseball legend in general. But Former when Cub. he kind of... Yeah, former almost everything at <laughs> right. this point. But <laughs> we were not one of the good ones. <laughs> yeah, but when he kind of came out of nowhere, you know, he was wandering in the wilderness. He was in indie ball, and then he signed with the Red Sox for one of the many times that he has signed with the Red Sox in his career. And he was discovered basically by Brian Bannister, who's a, another figure who was uh, playing a big part in the book. And he kind of recognized with the benefit of TrackMan, which had just become available and, and in wide use, that Hill had this incredible curveball and that he should be throwing it more, right? And so it sort of changed how he was valued and how he pitched. And then Hill just came back from being out of organized or affiliated baseball and was dominant late in the 2015 season. He looked like he was one of the best pitchers in baseball. And so every time he started, it was like, wait, how good is this guy? <laughs> like, what contract right. would we sign this pitcher to? And of course, it turned out that he had many, many more productive years left. And as it happens, he has made much more money late in his career than he ever did at the beginning, right? And a lot of that was because these tools became available for him to enhance his performance and also for what he could do well to really be recognized and valued. And there were all sorts of stories, right? That it was Rich Hill that really caught my attention. But you had, of course, Justin Turner and you had J.D. Martinez and mm -hmm. Travis had his own origin story. I, I think maybe Marlon Byrd played a, a part perhaps mm -hmm. in, in Travis's uh, just learning the potential here. So just the idea basically that getting to the majors, even being uh, established in the majors, was not necessarily the end of development. That maybe there was a higher level you could reach, that there was more untapped potential that you could unlock with the benefit of these tools that could either allow you to quantify something that was previously suspected, but you couldn't really put a number or put a finger on it, or just allowed you to perceive or see something that was actually unsuspected in the past. These aspects of pitching, things like seam shifted wake, right? Like all yeah. of these aspects of physics and, and pitch design that previously would have been a matter of years and years of trial and error and banging your head against the wall and, and maybe lucking into finding the right pitching coach or finding the right grip almost by accident or by happenstance. Whereas then it became a, a much more intentional process where it was like, let's have a Rapsodo and let's have a high-speed edutronic camera and we can suddenly see these things that were all but invisible before. So that was a, a really exciting idea. Yeah, and I mean, we'll keep this discussion you know, big picture, but I will pull some Cub examples into it. Um, kind of following on that, I think probably without Rich Hill or without going down that road, I'm not sure we see like the Drew Smiley or Justin Steele that we see right now. I mean, for a long time, the idea mm -hmm. that a starting pitcher is going to get by and be successful with two pitches, unless it was like an right. absolutely off the charts fastball and, you know, like Nolan Ryan's fastball and his 12-6 curveball. Um, Drew Smiley does kind of have some of those Rich Hill vibes. He's got kind of this unusual curveball that sometimes even has arm side run, which is pretty unusual. Um, Justin Steele's getting by really crushing righties inside. And I think that's where it's going. And one thing that going back through your book and when I read it the first time, you know, these ideas as, as much as baseball has been 
kind of the old guard versus the new and the traditional baseball guys versus, you know, the, the new math and all that kind of stuff. These ideas have been around for a long time. Yes. Yes. In many cases, they were things that coaches and players always knew or always suspected or just intuited. And maybe they were doubted by a, an early generation of sabermetricians because the precision just didn't exist with the statistical tools that they had to be able to detect or confirm these things. And one of the other things that was exciting to us about this movement was that it was sort of outsider driven, but also player driven, you know, whereas the Moneyball movement was sort of outsider driven, but really top down, you know, it was uh, Billy Bean, right? It was GMs kind of crunching the numbers or, yep. or people in the front office who were recognizing things that players could already do, but maybe had not been valued, you know, just on base percentage and, and the ability to take walks kind of being the quintessential Moneyball era example. But these were things that players already did and the baseball market and industry just didn't realize that. Whereas there was very little in Moneyball about the potential to make players better. It was all about, let's go get this guy who already walks a ton and no one cares because his batting average mm -hmm. isn't that high. But it wasn't like, can we make him walk more? Can we make his batting average higher? Can we help him hit more homers? That wasn't really even a, a possibility that was entertained or explored in the book or, or by teams at that time. Of course, there was coaching and, you know, you would take batting practice and throw bullpen sessions and, and sure. try to get better. But often once you got to the big league level, there wasn't that much of a concerted effort. And a lot of the coaches were kind of the manager's drinking buddies traditionally, you know, there wasn't a whole <laughs> lot of active coaching and, and kind of, you know, skill acquisition going on at that level. And we liked the idea that it was often players searching for these answers. It was kind of these facilities or, or coaches, you know, people who hadn't been in baseball their whole lives. They hadn't played professionally themselves or hadn't been big leaguers, right? And they had these ideas that didn't really fit the mold. And then players themselves were like, how do I get better? How do I throw harder? How do I throw a nastier breaking ball? Whatever it was. And then they would go to driveline or they would, you know, if you're Justin Turner, you would go to Doug Latta, you know, coaches like this who mm -hmm. had had their own facilities and their own ideas of how to do things that the game had largely ignored. And then it turned out that actually maybe there was something to it in a lot of cases. Yeah. And it's amazing to me as we go through this, you know, teams, well, most teams want to win. Some of them don't maybe seem to care that much, but um <laughs> It's amazing. You can almost see the teams that are so far behind on this stuff and just don't invest. And it's mm -hmm. uh, some of the examples you brought in, some of the players who weren't getting what they wanted from their team and then would go to driveline or go to some of these outside coaches. Um, I think you even mentioned the you know, names, but there's somebody from Fangraphs. I think a player had reached out to and kind of became personal consultant. Um, mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. there are so many tools available. Like as I've talked to people in the Cubs organization with, pitching and strength and conditioning and mental skills. It just seems like now is they're finally starting to make more investment in the players they have. And yet it still feels like there's a whole world of things being missed. Mm -hmm. I mean, from the, yeah, I think yeah. what the, the book, yeah, the book came out four years ago at this point, I guess. And we were working on it five years ago. So by the time, you even get to the point where people like me and Travis are, are writing a book about something, it's probably 
at least an open secret in the game, right? right. Uh, and then, you know, once the book comes out and, and once subsequent books and, and writing have come out, obviously no one is sort of in the dark about the idea that there's been this player development revolution and there are all these new tools available to you. And so probably some of the stuff that we wrote about in the book as kind of cutting edge would now not be, would be table stakes. And, sure. you know, now there's some new frontier. I, I think the idea of the book, just the this movement, this revolution in player development, I think that holds up. And we were writing about how that came about. But the implementations of that and just how sweeping that movement is have probably changed somewhat since the book came out. And I think it's just become clear that you have to be on board. But there is a difference between deciding, okay, yes, so we're going to overhaul our player development system, and then actually having that pay dividends, right? And mm -hmm. I guess if you're talking about the Cubs, I mean, it's been years now since you were first reading about the Cubs pitching lab, right? And mm -hmm. Sahadav Sharma was doing good reporting on that at The Athletic, and here's how the Cubs are trying to make pitchers better. And maybe now that's finally paying dividends, but it took years for that to happen, right, of the Cubs mm -hmm. continuing to struggle to develop and improve pitchers. So it wasn't just a matter of, yes, let's decide to do this. Then it's also a matter of implementing it. And it's not something you can necessarily snap your fingers and do overnight. So some of the teams that were the early adopters of this stuff and are kind of at the leading edge you know, now all this sort of outsider-driven, player-driven, player development movement, it's been co-opted by teams, right? And and now mm -hmm. it is that. It's still people going to independent facilities and practicing on their own, but it's also teams trying to bring those things in themselves and, and teach those players as soon as they get inside their system. But I think a lot of teams found out it's it's not just a matter of let's buy X number of TrackMan devices or Rapsodo devices or Edgertronics or whatever it is. That might be necessary, but it's not sufficient, right? Because you also need this pipeline. You need every step along the ladder to be on the same page. I'm mixing my metaphors there, but you need <laughs> coaches to communicate. You want a consistent message. You want every player to have a, a coherent player development plan so you draft them and they get into your system and they know what you want them to work on as opposed to in the past where your coach at a ball might tell you one thing and then you get to high a and then your coach says that ah, nope put that pitch in your back pocket let's work on this pitch and then you get to double a and they say actually we want you to do this instead right and you know <laughs> everywhere you go you hear a different message so i think it's a, a matter of really getting everyone on the same page. It's it's very much like a change management, organizational, philosophical shift. And I think some teams have implemented that better than others. You know, almost yeah. every team might have the desire to do that, but the level of investment and I think the level of competence when it comes to making that happen still varies fairly widely. Yeah. Well, one thing I've seen in... I've seen it from the Cubs' perspective. I know they're not the only team doing this, but when they look at free agents in the offseason, and the, the one area I think where the Cubs saw the first success from their new pitching infrastructure, the pitch lab, were some of the veteran relievers they brought in. You know, guys like Ryan Tapera, Andrew Chafin, David Robertson last year, bringing guys in, whether they're changing their pitch mix or whether they're adding, maybe the, this year they were trying to add a sweeper slider to a couple guys. Um, they've yeah, had some isn't. success with that. <laughs> What's that? Mm hmm. 
<laughs> who isn't at, oh, I I know, exactly. at this point. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that's the thing, right? So all these teams are doing largely the same things. They see somebody have success with something and, and they change it. Um, at this point, do you th- see the pitching as ahead of the hitting? Yeah, I think it probably always has been and always will be to a certain extent, just because, uh, as they always say, you know, pitching is more of a proactive activity. Hitting is reactive. True. The pitcher goes first. The hitter tries to counter. And, you know, the, the pitcher, like a lot of what the pitcher is doing can be measured, can be quantified, whereas the hitter is is always trying to react, right? I mean, yeah, you can kind of quantify the swing and just the movement and the bat speed and the approach angle and all of that. But once you're actually in a game, like the, the pitcher is just throwing the pitch, it's up to the hitter then to try to adapt and adjust to that pitch. And that can be a, a harder thing to practice and prepare for. And, you know, it's just, it's very dependent, I think, on what the pitcher is doing, whereas what the pitcher is doing is probably less dependent on what the hitter is doing. Mm-hmm. You know, the pitcher is throwing the pitch that he decides to throw the way that he wants to throw it, and the hitter is taking what he's given and trying to do his best with that and put a good swing on it or decide not to swing on it. So I think a lot of those tools, you know, like you could quantify velocity for decades now and maybe that's become more accurate but then when you could quantify spin rate and all of these other you know factors of the pitch and the run value of certain pitches and what percentage of the time is a pitcher throwing this pitch i think it that just lends itself more to quantification and then by extension optimization than mm-hmm. what the hitter is doing where as i said it's just dependent on on what the hitter's seeing like that said there's definitely an effort to try to level the playing field a bit and and provide tools for hitters to keep up or even pull ahead. And I think that's probably helping in some cases. So you do have a lot of emphasis on movement and, you know, just like enhancing your workouts and trying to optimize your swing. And, you know, you could have wearable technologies and vests and bat (laughs) trackers and all sorts of tools that can help you improve your bat speed or shorten your path to the ball or, you know, try to hit the ball out in front of the plate to hit for more power, even if you're not such a a big guy to begin with. So Mm -hmm. there are things you can do there. And there've also been efforts as I've written about to improve pitching machines, right? So you have these very advanced uh, pitching machines out these days that advertise themselves as being able to more or less perfectly replicate the pitch characteristics that you're seeing in a game. So you can, in theory, take batting practice against a pitcher and, you know, the pitch is coming out of a video board that looks like it's being released by the pitcher you're about to face and then the pitch will move exactly the way that it will move in the game, in theory. And that way you can have a a more deliberate practice than you could if you were just taking batting practice against batting practice fastballs or, you know, even high speed batting practice that's a little more challenging, but maybe is not mimicking the precise pitch characteristics of the pitcher you're about to be facing. So whether it's one of those advanced pitching machines or it's some sort of VR rig where you're sort of simulating the experience of facing that pitcher, does it map on perfectly? Is it totally lifelike? 
probably not exactly, but it's a, a lot closer than it used to be, I think. So, you know, the pitcher could always just throw the way they would in a game in theory in practice. I mean, even if a hitter wasn't standing there mentally, psychologically, it, it might be hard to psych yourself up and have the same sort of adrenaline that you would in a game. Mm-hmm. But the pitcher can go about his game plan and can say, I want to practice throwing this pitch type or I want to try to throw pitches in this location instead of that location. And you can do that even without the hitter being there or with someone just standing there, you know, pretending to hit, right? Whereas the hitter kind of needs a foil, needs someone to hit against. And maybe now these advanced pitching machines can do a better job of that along with all the sports science and high performance stuff that you alluded to where it's like, can we get your body in a better position? And, and, you know, if we want to change your stance or your swing in a certain way, but maybe you physically can't perform that movement, well, then do we have to change your workout routine or your mm-hmm. nutrition or your sleep habits, right? It's become this very holistic effort to to make players better in every facet of their game. And, of course, pitchers are doing that to some extent, too, because you have all of this advanced biomechanical data, even from StatCast these days, so that you can get precise limb tracking, right? And you can just analyze and break down mechanics even without having to stick a bunch of markers on a pitcher in a lab somewhere. They can be out there on a mound, and you still have this uh, very precise rendering of what the pitcher's doing Mm -hmm. and what the various forces involved in that delivery are. So it's always an arms race, you know? It always has been, and it always will be. One of the cool things about that markerless technology I was talking to Mike Son about last time is we were talking about being able to, as long as the, the frame rates and the video quality is high enough, being able to go back in time and get some measurements maybe from a earlier in a guy's career before that technology was actually available. So we were talking a little bit about yeah. like Cody, Cody Bellinger being able to go back to 2017 and maybe get some video when maybe they didn't have the readings on it and kind of compare back and see mm-hmm. what he's doing now compared to then. Yeah, right. That can be really helpful because one of the ways that this can help is that you can in theory, reach a performance level that you've never been at before. I mean, that would be great if you can be better than you've ever been before. But what if you've been great and now you're no longer great? Well, Mm -hmm. at least you know that you have the potential to be or you had the potential to be. And maybe that makes it a little bit easier. You know, certainly there's something to be said for just your raw physical gifts. Like a lot of this can obviously be improved and in ways that in the past certain players might've been written off who shouldn't have been. Obviously there's still some baseline of physical talent and gifts and skill that you have to have. And so if you had that at some point, then maybe it's easier to get you back to that level than it is to get you to that level for the first time if you've never been there before. True. And sure, you could always look at at video, right? And, you know, in the past, uh, Tony Gwynn was looking at VHS tapes, right? And and then it became DVDs, and then it was players looking at footage on their iPods or their laptops or whatever it was. And now, of course, you know, they can look on their iPad and have it accessible the second after they hit and everything. But it's not just that. It's even more granular and precise, right? So it's not just, what did I look like then? How was I holding my bat? How was I standing? Can I mimic that? But it can be just drilling down to, you know, how exactly was I gripping that pitch? And what kind of movement profile was I getting? And and what was my the angle of my swing? And all of the stuff that's just 
incredibly precise and and could be overwhelming and so it's the job of of whoever the intermediary is to try to communicate that information in a way that you're not overloading the athlete right and and you're delivering some hopefully simple and digestible takeaways and and things that they can remember while they're at the plate and they're also trying to anticipate what's he going to throw me and then adjust to a 97 mile per hour fastball so that's all easier said than done but I think there's also a, a recognition now that, you know, in some ways you can have a more specialized, limited skill set and be a big leaguer, particularly as a pitcher, just because you can be a one inning at a time guy now, which was a job description that didn't necessarily exist 50 years ago, right? So you might not need three viable big league pitches you you sometimes hardly even need two if you're someone who a lineup is not getting repeated looks at so to some extent there's just i think an opening for for people with a a broader range of skill sets than there used to be but also i think there's a recognition that if you have some elite skill then you can build around that you know that if you're doing something that works really well do that more. Right. <laughs> you know, there's 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 no kind of artificial this is a fastball count, this is a breaking ball count. We must throw this pitch more often than that pitch, and we must start with this pitch type and finish with that pitch type. It's very much, I think, individualized now, less than a, a one size fits all kind of here are the rules about when and where and how you throw certain pitches. Now it's like, hey, if you have one major league quality pitch and you can keep throwing that thing over and over again, you need something to complement that, but it might just be a a borderline sort of showy pitch. You know, if you're out there to face three or four batters and you have a dominant pitch, uh, congrats, you're a big leaguer. You know, just ride (laughs) that as hard as you can. And I think there's less of a stigma surrounding that and less of a a prohibition and a a barrier surrounding that. So it's partly, I think, being able to inculcate major league quality skills, but it's also partly just being able to cultivate the ones that already exist and encourage a player and say, yeah, you don't do everything super well or at an elite level, but you do enough. You know, this can get you to the big leagues if you just do more of what you do well. Yeah, and that was one of the questions. I think we've seen it with especially some relievers, like you said, because you only have to face three or four hitters. But do you think this has mm-hmm. allowed more of the the fringe player? The I, I know unaffectedly wild. Do you guys talking about like talking about everything weird about baseball? Um, does this allow more of those kind of weird and unique guys to come up, or do you see team some teams really trying to have a framework? Like we want a guy who looks like X, who throws this way. Yeah. I think teams are less married to a template, like everyone has to throw this pitch. So you see a lot less of that, which I think is probably for the best. Uh, There have certainly been some successful cases of organizations that prioritize a certain type of pitching and did well with that, but also it backfired when they tried to force players into that box Mm -hmm. who weren't necessarily suited for it. So now I think there's more open-mindedness about do what you do well and adjust to to what you're given and and you know maybe try to draft or trade for a certain type of player who fits a certain profile if you think that that's something you're particularly adept at 
refining and improving if you think that's a strength of your organization, but it, it might be more about targeting guys you think you can help than just trying to make everyone into that type of player if they're not really suited for it. So I think there's potential for players who would not have gotten a second glance in an earlier era to make the majors and, and to be valued. There's also, I, I think, probably some kind of you know conforming and, and some recognizing that certain things tend to be more beneficial and then it might be a, a different skill set, but it could also end up being sort of everyone fits the same mold, you know, because you're seeing certain trends, whether it's toward fewer four seamers, right, and more sliders. And, and that's a product of like, hey, sliders are hard to hit, you know, and right. you can quantify that. And you can look at the run values. And it certainly seems like people were just not throwing enough of them, maybe because there was kind of this tradition of uh, pitchers counts and hitters counts and here's what you should throw and everything works off the fastball and all of that and so it's exciting it's like okay you don't have to be bound by that and you don't have to throw fastballs low in the zone it's better to throw certain fastballs high in the zone and also even if you're throwing your fastball harder than anyone has ever thrown fastballs before it it might still be beneficial to throw fewer of them because it's just harder to hit pitches with a lot of bend in it and that's why you're seeing these sweepers right and mm -hmm. and the sweeper is not necessarily a, a brand new thing it's it's kind of a rebranding of a pitch that has existed and gone by different names before but right. again it was like hey this this pitch is good we should you know it, it's something we can teach people and they can start throwing that and so that does lead to some differentiation but then it becomes a copycat situation where suddenly everyone is throwing a sweeper, right? And everyone's <laughs> trying to learn a sweeper. And then it, it just it's a back and forth, never ending kind of count and mouse game where, OK, maybe it makes sense for guys to add sweepers when not that many pitchers are throwing sweepers. But then what happens when everyone is throwing a sweeper? Well, then it probably won't be as effective anymore because hitters will be seeing it all the time mm -hmm. and they'll be used to it and they'll acclimate to it and, and they'll be expecting it. They can anticipate it. And then at that point, maybe the sweeper will be out of vogue, right? I mean, <laughs> we've seen this happen to other pitches types before, like they come and go. The, the fashions uh, just change over time because it's a call and response. It's like we adjust to this strategy and then we develop a new one. And sometimes old ones that have fallen out of fashion will come back into fashion and will suddenly work really well. So there does seem to be a, a mold though, you know, where like your, your eighth inning guy, your late inning reliever, like a lot of those guys are just kind of going to look similar you know there's right. going to be like a 99 mile per hour fastball and and a nasty slider right like there mm -hmm. are just a lot of pitchers who fit that mold because maybe it's easier to find or develop pitchers who have two viable pitches than three or four or five right and mm -hmm. when you see that it works that well when just in the aggregate sliders are are really good at getting outs then you're going to teach sliders and people are going to refine sliders and they're going to find the nastiest grip that they can to make the best movement and the most spin etc so i think it it does open up the possibility for players with different skill sets to to get a look or you know for a, a player like a mookie betts or a francisco Lindor or you know jose ramirez or, or guys like this who are not built like prototypical power hitters maybe to find a way to hit like that in addition to everything else that they do well 
but it also does tend toward a, a prioritization of certain skill sets, I think, that analytically speaking seem to be recommended, right? Yeah. I got a, so a question for you as we take these developments and, and the way they're developing skills and the way the game plays out. I mean, I think as you get more of those elite pitches, as you get more relief pitchers going full max effort for three or four hitters as opposed to having to stretch out over multiple innings. Um, we've had the rule changes. So some of the rule changes we had this year mm-hmm. were tied to speed of the game, pace of play, all that kind of thing. But things like banning the shift, do you think some of those rules were really just aesthetic or do you think it was really targeting some of the things that are maybe a natural outcome of the advanced analytics? Like I know I can throw this pitch. I know I can bust this lefty on his hands. He has no choice but to pull it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I think some of these rules changes are are definitely responses to trends that have been at least exacerbated and accelerated by some of these innovations that we're talking about. And and that's something we mentioned in the MVP machine too, that you know, all of these innovations and 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 advances in player development, they can benefit certain players, they can certainly benefit teams. But neither the player nor the team is thinking first and foremost of what's best for baseball, what's best for the sport, what would be most entertaining for spectators. Uh, There's just uh, different motivations and incentives here, right? And teams and players are going to do what serves them best and what helps them win most and make the most money. And that may or may not align with what fans want to see or what makes baseball more entertaining. That's just a a separate concern, but obviously an important one. And that's where the commissioner comes in and the league office come in and, and MLB comes in and fans come in to some extent to make their preferences heard and felt. And MLB has to step in from time to time and, and say, hey, you've broken baseball. You've you've solved baseball to a certain extent, so we're going to change the rules on you. We don't like the way things are going. And it's not that sabermetrics uh, invented strikeouts or anything like that. You know, obviously there's been kind of throughout baseball history just a, over time a trend toward more power and more strikeouts, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that is not just something that has happened since Moneyball, but it has certainly accelerated just over the past several years, and, and it does have something to do with everything we're talking about here. I mean, you know, you develop nastier breaking balls, that's going to lead to more strikeouts in theory and also in practice. So I think the the shift restrictions, I think that was largely aesthetic and also maybe a indirect attempt to address some of the contact issues. And I've talked about this and written about this elsewhere, but I think the idea was, hey, if we make batted balls and balls in play more rewarding for hitters, then they will be incentivized to have a more contact-oriented approach and and they will want to put the ball in play. But that hasn't really played out that dramatically because it's still quite beneficial to hit the ball as hard as possible and to hit the ball over the fence. Mm -hmm. And also a lot of the problem is not what happens after the ball is put in play, but before it's put in play or increasingly not put in play because it's really hard to hit these pitches because they're throwing harder than ever and they're throwing in a, a nastier way than ever. So 
obviously that's going to lead to strikeouts and and less contact and I don't think that problem is going to solve itself. You know, there was, I think, a perception for a while that it will just, again, be the call and response. And you put the shift on and uh, hitters will start going the other way or dropping bunts down. And that happened in isolated cases, but it didn't happen on a league-wide level for many reasons. But I think the foremost among them being that it's just really hard, you know, if you're a major league hitter hitting against these pitchers, yeah. you can't just say, yeah, I'm just casually, I, I I think I'll just hit over there where that hole is. Like, it's hard enough to make contact at all, let alone to place it where you want it as they did in the dead ball era. You know, it's just a different brand of baseball. So I think you need some constraints and controls. You need someone to step in and say, this is what we want baseball to look like. In some cases, it may be what it used to look like, right? In some cases, it may be something new. And here's what fans want, and we've surveyed them, and we've polled them, and here's what they're telling us. And so we're going to put our thumb on the scale a little bit, or we're going to tell teams and players, you you can't do this the way that you used to before. And I think there are good ways to do that, and there are more intrusive, heavy-handed ways to do that. But... I think the rules changes this year, as successful as they've been in many respects, and most notably with the pitch clock and and bringing down the time of game, but also to some extent with amping up the running game. But I don't think there's uh, as easy and, and simple a solution for strikeouts, for instance. But the ones that I've favored in the past, I, I've talked about moving the mound back just you know makes sense to me that mm-hmm. with pitchers throwing harder than they ever have and and being bigger than they ever have and literally releasing the pitch closer to home plate than they <laughs> mm-hmm. ever have and also throwing it harder when they do it just makes sense to me not to have the mound be where it was in 1893 you know that we should give hitters a little more reaction time and and people dispute you know what exactly the effects of that would be and certainly more experimentation is required but my preferred my number one solution these days is just to limit the number of pitchers on the active roster at any given time and mlb took a small step toward that last year just lowering it from from no limit (laughs) you know now it's 13 (laughs) Mm -hmm. which is still quite high historically speaking and there may be various ways you can work around even that but if we were to lower it to to 12 or to 11 you know just to get it down then I feel like that would solve a lot of problems or at least go a long way toward addressing them because pitchers would have to pace themselves, which they do not do now. It's just all out max effort at all times. And why wouldn't it be? Because they want to throw as well as they can. They want to throw as hard as they can. And they're not asked to go deep into games anymore. So they're going all out from from the get-go. And the effect of that is that... Yeah, it's harder to hit. Yeah, it's a whole lot harder to hit. Yes. And I think the other problem is that counterintuitively, even though pitchers are throwing fewer pitches than they used to on an individual basis and throwing a lot fewer innings than they used to, they're still seemingly getting hurt about as often as ever. And I think that's because of the max effort pitching style. You know, there have been a lot of studies that have shown that it's really harmful for pitchers to throw toward the top end of their velocity range consistently. You know, it it can be harmful just to be a harder throwing pitcher, but also when you are throwing toward the top end of your range, whatever that range is, that is putting a lot more stress on your arm and it takes a toll, right? And the forces are, I mean, the UCL 
can barely withstand throwing as hard as as major league pitchers do. And so when they're constantly throwing as hard as they possibly can, then it's it's going to go, right? And so mm-hmm. I think if you have a limit and, you know, part of the problem is that teams don't want to be limited in that way. They're used to their big bullpens. And we have a generation of pitchers that have not been taught to pace themselves and to save something in reserve. Mm-hmm. And so you would have to phase it in and instruct pitchers carefully, I think. But in the long run, if you did have those limitations, pitchers would go deeper into games. They would pace themselves. So you'd get many benefits. You'd get starters staying in the game longer, which I think is entertaining. I think people like to see the same starter in the game facing the lineup a a few times. And, you know, you'd get fewer pitching changes. You would get just less of a parade of relievers who no one knows just coming out of the bullpen (laughs) one after the other. And you'd get lower velocities, and so you'd get more hittable pitches, uh, fewer strikeouts, and I think you would get fewer injuries, even though you'd be asking each individual pitcher to shoulder a, a heavier load in terms of innings or pitches. So that's my preferred panacea solution to everything that ails baseball, <laughs> at least in that regard, and I hope we can gradually get there. Maybe you can be commissioner someday. Um, <laughs> sure. Well, I, I get the sense that MLB sees the wisdom in that too, and and wants to do that. It's just a matter of overcoming resistance and also yeah. doing it in such a way that you know if you did that overnight and you have all these pitchers who are used to throwing max effort and now they're still going to be doing that, but also they're going to be throwing more innings and pitches, then you're in an even worse situation. So you'd have to get everyone adjusted and adapted to that idea and so it it might take some time but i hope not too much time well and that's a key point too because i i have a my oldest son went through the youth baseball world travel ball and so much of the youth baseball world is geared around showcases and you play high school ball but really you're recruited and you're judged off what you do in high level tournaments and what you do in you know two or three weekends over the course of a year Mm -hmm. showcases maxing that gun seeing how far you can hit and yeah. I've got to think like that's not going to change until something changes way ahead of it at the big league level. So even if we make those changes that you're just talking about, we're probably talking about six, eight years at least to see the full effect of that come through the system because mm-hmm. the players in baseball already are who they are. Right. Yeah. And it takes time for that to, to trickle down, I guess, to the lower levels because everyone kind of takes their cue from the majors. And in the majors, everything is is speed, speed, speed. And understandably so, because uh, look, all else being equal, it is better to throw hard and to swing hard and to do everything fast and strong. I mean, I get it, right? But you have to have these uh, limits, these limiters, basically, that provide some reason for players to pump the brakes a bit or or take their foot (laughs) fully off the gas, at least a little bit Mm -hmm. off the gas, because yeah, you're, I mean, when you're in high school and you're in these uh, travel ball situations, you're at these showcases, you try to throw as hard as you possibly can. And even big leaguers, they they turn around and they look at the the radar reading or the stat cast reading and they want triple digits and they want to get it as high as possible because look, we focus on that. We fixate it on it in the media and players do and teams and coaches do. I mean, that's how you get evaluated as, as a player, as a pitcher, a big part of that is velocity. So 
I understand why that is, but if we could gravitate toward a version of the game where not everyone was throwing as hard as they possibly could at all times, then maybe we would eventually arrive at a a healthier state of the game where, sure, you still want to throw hard and some guys will throw harder than others, but everyone will be pacing themselves at least until they really need to get that out in the big situation. And then suddenly they ramp it up in the way that say Justin Verlander has done in the past mm-hmm. or, or Shohei Otani or, or some others, you know, Sandy Alcantara, et cetera. Well, and while those guys are fun to watch and as a Cub fan, you know, I loved watching Kerry Wood pitch, but I've got over the years, I got just yeah. as much joy from watching, you know, Pete Kyle Hendricks from 2016 to 2018. Yeah. And those, those guys can do it, right. but we saw the last couple of years, Kyle loses a little bit of velocity and a little bit of command, and all of a sudden, his margin for error is razor thin. Yeah, yeah, or Rich Hill, who's still out there doing mm-hmm. it, right? I mean, it, it's nice to have a variety of, of player profiles, right? Uh, not to have everyone look exactly the same and swing exactly the same and throw exactly the same. So when you do have... Your soft tossers, I mean, these days, the the soft tossers, the finesse guys are are still throwing pretty hard relative right. to earlier eras. But having the command and control guys, that's that's fun, right? And, you know, just having some space in the game for those players. And I, I do think there are more of them out there who are passed over just because of the, again, understandable obsession with speed you know there are certain guys it's a little harder to quantify command than it is to just say he throws 99 right Right. so you might need a little more time to assess command you might not be able to to have a computer and camera system that can tell you after one pitch does he have great command right so I think it takes a little more effort, and as long as there's a, seemingly a, a just an innumerable, you know, army of pitchers who can throw high 90s, it's it's hard to allow room, I think, for a diversity of player types. But I would like a, a version of baseball where you could see that, and and MLB I think feels the same way. You know, they're trying in their way to bring back speed and bring back contact, and I think there needs to be even more done in that area, particularly in pitching. Yeah. So as we, uh, two final questions to kind of wrap up with here. Um, what do you see as kind of the next, you know, I think every time we go through these phases, we went through a time where there was, there were, there was no minor league system. Then branch Ricky changed that. And then some teams, you know, the, the, the Cubs tried their bringing in their analytics people back in the forties and there were just no takers and some other coaches that we see today. Um, then they did the ridiculous college of coaches, but then we saw the, the Phillies research program and the Royals Academy and some of those things. Um, Mm -hmm. and as we pass through each generation, like, it seems like how could people have missed all the stuff that now we can see and some of it's technology, but do you have a sense of like what the next thing is that maybe is right on the cutting edge now or, or sitting kind of just in front of us that 10 years will be like, how did we miss that for 40 years? (laughs) I think part of the focus now is is what we touched on earlier with the sports science and just trying to develop the player all around not just their baseball skills but also how are they sleeping and what are they eating and what are they doing in the gym and you hope that that stuff doesn't get too invasive and a lot of it is is collectively bargained to protect the players from being monitored by big brother at all times even as they sleep but yeah i think part of that you know, there's there's definitely 
an aspect of, you know, it's it's not just what happens on the field or what you do in the cage or what you do on the mound, but it's uh, also what you're doing when you're in the gym and when you're away from the field. So there are people who are explicitly devoted to that now, whereas in the past that might have fallen by the wayside as you've focused on the baseball skills. So I think that's one big thing. And it's not particularly new or original to suggest this, but I mean, health is obviously the area where Mm -hmm. if you could have some breakthrough there, that's what teams are trying to do, I think, with the high performance departments and with sports science. It's partly, yes, trying to make players faster and stronger, but also trying to keep them on the field, right? And to try to make sure that they're not overexerting themselves, uh, that they're not you know, working out and playing when they're fatigued, when you're more likely to hurt yourself or change your mechanics in in some way that leads to a a whole cascade of problems. And obviously some of the more acute injuries, uh, teams would love to prevent those too. I don't think there's going to be the answer, the magic solution to something like Tommy John surgery, because uh, again, that's just anatomy. You know, it's just if you're throwing that hard, you're putting those stresses on your arm. Sure, you can do things mechanically to reduce those stresses as much as possible, but you're still really just literally on the knife's edge when it comes to that, where, you know, those uh, tendons are, are being stressed and ligaments are being stressed to their breaking point and and sometimes beyond. So whatever you can do biomechanically to try to minimize those forces, I I think teams are very interested in doing that. But again, it's kind of at cross purposes with the constant pursuit of velocity. It's like, it's damage control, basically. It's like, how long can we keep this guy on the field before inevitably he hurts himself because of this drive toward velocity? So maybe it is just that, some team decides we're actually going to stop stressing speed so much and you know whether that will work or not i don't know like you heard that about the cubs rotation in recent years too where it was like we'll have a softer throwing rotation and uh, we'll get by with seam shifted wake and you know all and that worked it didn't really so work well. so well <laughs> no because <laughs> you know it, it i hate to say it but it, it really does help to throw hard but if there is some organization that manages to instill that idea of pacing yourself and saving something and is able to compensate with something instead of velocity at all times and max effort, whether it's command, whether it's secondary stuff, whatever it is, just to let players perform and let pitchers succeed without subjecting themselves to those same extreme forces over and over and over again, then that would be super beneficial. You know, there are teams that have done strengthening programs and and you've seen almost, you know, a lot of the shoulder injuries that used to happen. Now, maybe there are fewer of those and they've just migrated to the elbow because it's like, Mm -hmm. that's the weak point now, you know, and some there's going to be a weak point in that kinetic chain and and something's going to snap and maybe it's your elbow instead of your shoulder maybe that's a little bit better than the alternative but it's still not great and i just i don't know that some team is uh, sitting on secret knowledge of uh, here's how you prevent tommy john surgery there are certainly some teams that have been harder hit than others in that mm-hmm. area but i would guess that a lot of that is is chance and randomness and just happening to have pitchers who are more or less prone to it but look even if there's no perfect solution to that maybe it's hamstring strains maybe it's obliques whatever it is you know right it's it's 
whatever preparation you're doing or exercise you're doing or nutrition just to try to minimize those those nagging injuries and it's hard to tell whether there's been any progress in that area because the past few seasons have been so anomalous in various ways whether it's the lockout or the pandemic and compressed spring trainings and a lot of that seems to have led to more injuries but it's hard to extrapolate from that I think hopefully if we have more normal baseball years and years in general to come but that's the big frontier where it's obvious that there's still a ton of gain to be made at least in theory and the rewards are are obvious not just in terms of players uh, well-being and and their happiness and healthiness but also in terms of just looking at how many wins teams don't get and how much money they spend every year on players who are not able to perform because of injuries so any inroads you can make in that area would be just an enormous uh, sea change that hopefully would not be hoarded by any one team, but but would be shared to some extent so that everyone could benefit from that. On the plus side, nothing seems to stay secret very long. Yeah, exactly. I mean, teams move around and yep. uh, coaches and other personnel move around. And when one team seems to be having great success in one area, then everyone says, huh, wonder what they're doing. We should <laughs> hire some of their people who can tell us their secret, you know, whether there is one or not. So things do tend to circulate fairly quickly. Yeah. So to get out of here, um, I'll kind of go a little effectively wild with this question. So I liked the segment of the book when you were walking <laughs> through the, the old history um, of some of the past ideas and going back to what the Cubs tried to do to bring in, it really seemed like sort of a modern structure with one or two people as opposed to organization wide, but how different would baseball be if that had caught on, you know, 80 years ago? Do you mean the college of coaches kind of idea? No, the, or... the good part where they tried to bring in like uh, skills development and strength and conditioning and kind of try those things mm. together. Right. Yeah, I mean, if that had happened sooner, that's that's always the the hypothetical in the various time travel <laughs> thought experiments, where it's like if you you know brought Babe Ruth to today, or if you sent Mike Trout back to then, or whatever it is, you always have to clarify: is this an overnight thing where they're teleporting, they're time traveling, and then they're going right into the game, or are you saying? if Babe Ruth were born in 1995 and, you know, right. and, and he came up in this era and got to take advantage of all the strength and conditioning stuff, that's a very different question and a different answer. So I would think that, I mean, the caliber of, of baseball would have improved uh, more quickly and we would have gotten where we are much sooner. I mean, just the resistance to strength training up until the past few decades, really, yeah. where it was thought that that wouldn't be beneficial for baseball players. that I, Obviously, that uh, belief, maybe that misconception, that changed. So if, if some of these things had happened earlier, then uh, who knows? Uh, maybe we just would have gotten where we are today sooner and we would have plateaued, or maybe we would be in some wondrous bright future where some some additional steps would have been taken by now. It's uh, it's hard to say, but I think we are seeing just a, a proliferation of instructors now and, and coaches, right? Not a college mm -hmm. of coaches where you have various people rotating at in the top spot, but you're seeing more coaches than ever. You know, you look at, mm -hmm. at a team like the Giants that's been a leader in that respect, and 
and so many teams now. You don't have a hitting coach and a pitching coach. You have an assistant pitching coach, and you have an assistant to the pitching coach. I mean, <laughs> there's th- three different pitching coaches and hitting coaches on a lot of these teams, and then there's a quality control coach and a process coach and all these positions where you read it and you might not even know exactly what that coach does from the description. And I think that's, again, just a recognition of I mean, just from a return on investment perspective, you can hire a bunch of coaches for what it costs you to sign a major league player, right? So if Mm -hmm. uh, you can hire a bunch of coaches and they can make your existing players or the players in your pipeline better and you don't have to go sign someone, then maybe that saves you money in the long run. You can sell that to ownership possibly, but just makes sense like to have individualized uh, attention i mean it's like when we talk about schools and and the teacher to student ratio right you don't want that to be just uh, too many students to to a teacher because right. they won't get individual attention and and the teachers will be overwhelmed and they won't be able to devote any time to any particular player or student so if you're a player you might not gel well with a particular hitting coach so what if there are two other hitting coach options and what if you Mm -hmm. mesh well with with this one instead of that one great or what if they're all great but you just have more of them available to you at all times and just more downtime for those coaches to do research or to think proactively about things that they could help players with so makes sense Uh, that's another area where it's like why were we not doing this uh, ages ago and you know the economics of baseball may not have supported that back in the early days but for quite a while now just you didn't even used to have uh, pitching and hitting coaches initially you might have had a manager a base coach you know and gradually it it expands but now more rapidly than ever so i think that's uh, an area where certain organizations just kind of cheap out you know maybe it's because ownership is just not willing to spend on things that you can't prove or demonstrate exactly what the return will be you know if if you sign a free agent it's like okay we think this free agent will win us x number of games whereas if it's let's uh, house our minor leaguers or make sure that they have square meals or that there are a bunch of development coaches at every minor league level, it it is or at least was a little more speculative. It's like, well, Mm -hmm. we think this will pay off, but we can't necessarily say it it will gain us uh, X wins next year, right? But it always made sense. And there are a lot of organizations that just drag their feet at doing that and, and to some extent still do today. But more and more, there's just a whole infrastructure that surrounds the team. So we look at the major league coaching staff that might be bigger we look at the players on the active roster we look at the the player payroll but that's the tip of the iceberg you know it might be the the biggest part of the iceberg but there's still a lot of iceberg that we're not seeing because there's just a a a whole you know player development industrial complex and and sometimes it's within the organization and sometimes it's these independent third-party facilities but there are a whole lot of people out there whose job it is to make players better and also players themselves are pursuing these things with a lot more enthusiasm than they ever had before and in a just much more efficient way where they're all receptive to these ideas. You know, it's not like the players are these old school guys who are like, I don't want to know any numbers. You know, the players who are coming up now, they've been steeped in this stuff from the start. So mm-hmm. it's not like twisting their arm to get them to use this technology or look at 
the numbers or what the numbers are telling them, they want to know. They're hungry and thirsty for that information. And, you know, to different degrees, obviously, but a lot less resistance just because you look around the league and you can point to this guy who suddenly started throwing this new pitch and look how much better Mm -hmm. he got and look how much more money he made. It becomes an easier sell, especially when those guys are in the same dugout, in the same bullpen, in the same clubhouse. You look around and it's like, that guy couldn't do that last year. (laughs) Where did that come from? (laughs) What facility did you train at this offseason? How do I go there? Right. So you want to keep up. You want to make sure that, that you stay on the cutting edge, too. Yeah. Well, it's been great, Ben. Thanks for coming on. Um, where can my listeners find your work? Mm-hmm. Well, at Effectively Wild, which is at Fangraphs and all the various places you can find podcasts. Uh, Meg Rowley and I co-host that pod, and we do it three times per week. And then you can also find me podcasting and writing sometimes about baseball and often about non-baseball subjects at The Ringer, where the rest of my work appears. Hey, you have the, uh, I think you have the job every 12-year-old would dream of. Video games and baseball. Certainly the one I wanted when I was 12. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't dreaming of, of podcasting because there was no such thing. But I, I do often say that my my hobbies and passions have not changed all that much <laughs> for over the past 20 years. So I don't know whether that means I'm just like in a arrested development sort of situation or whether I just identified what I liked early on and that just uh, didn't change all that much. But yeah, the things that I cover now of often writing about baseball and video games and Star Wars, <laughs> it's like <laughs> very much what I was into in sixth grade. So I don't know. I don't know whether that says something about my maturity or lack thereof or, or whether I have actually lived the dream, but I've I've been happy with it. Well, we'll we'll say you live the dream, live the dream. Sure. But, uh, it's more flattering to me. So yeah. thank you. Thanks for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Ben for joining me today, and a big thanks to you for hanging out with us. If you liked the discussion, or maybe especially if you didn't, please drop a rating or review wherever it is you find your podcasts. Just a few seconds of your time can help me get better and help other Cub fans find the show. As always, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube, all at CubsPS+. If you like the show, you can also help support the show by going to my Patreon page, CubsPSPlus.Patreon.com. Your support helps keep the show going and staying ad-free. This is Mike Waller, host of the Cubs PS Plus podcast. Every day with Cubs baseball or talking about Cubs baseball is a great day. Go Cubs!